So it's been uh, 46 weeks. Um, 46 weeks we um, started journeying through the book of Acts. Um, and, and with the exception of, I think, maybe three, three interruptions, three weeks, we have, uh, we've done that un- uninterrupted. And we picked up on this, on this study um, kind of last minute. What we, were, what we were doing toward the end of last year was we were looking at the, the, the DNA series, basically who we are, our foundational principles as, as a local church body. Uh, and and uh, the plan was at the first of the year to roll right into an Old Testament book. We were thinking about Jonah. We were thinking about a few other options there and praying through that. But when we hit the, the series where we started talking about who we are as a local church and what our, what our principles are, what our foundational principles are, it, it became very obvious um, that we wanted to move right into what, is the, what, what are the, the, the foundational principles of the universal church. So, so as not to think that we're doing something any, any different than what the universal church did, what, what the, the early church, the way, the way uh, God had ordained it, um, this is kind of the model for us. And so we said, you know what, let's, call, let's kind of pause. We like alternating between Old Testament and New Testament studies as we walk through Sunday mornings. Um, but we felt like it was important to dive into Acts so that we can see we're not just making this stuff up about who we want to be as a local church. Uh, this is how God ordains the local church. This is what it looks like. This is how uh, God's expression of the gospel takes place in local communities. Um, and those foundational principles, what I hope, have, be- have become very uh, ingrained in who we are and what we've seen through the, the book of Acts. I-, I hope we've come to embrace the foundational thing, the the. the the pillar, so to speak, that we started this study on, and it's the fact that uh, despite opposition, and in fact, sometimes as a result of opposition, uh, God is advancing the gospel. Uh, He is pushing back darkness with light, and he's doing that through the local church. And so the the reason I want to point that out, and the the reason I want to kind of set that as a as a benchmark for who we are as a church is that God's plan for advancing the mission isn't slick programming. That wasn't his intentions for advancing the gospel. His, his intentions for, for advancing the gospel uh, wasn't going to come through dynamic musicians and great communicators. That's not what his plan was to advance the mission, advance the gospel. It isn't through seeker-sensitive church programming environments that only further feed the, the Christian consumerism that we, that we deal with. That's not what he intended. It has been and always will be advancing the gospel by the declaration and the demonstration of God's people, how they articulate the gospel with what they say and and what they do through the power of the Spirit, and a lot of times in the face of opposition. And so today we're going to conclude our study. We are in Acts chapter 28. Um, We're going to close this series out. Uh, We began on January 7th. Uh, of, of this year, and we've, we've trekked through 28 chapters, the last eight of those chapters. Uh, we've kind of moved a little bit uh, quicker through, and that was because, uh, for obvious reasons, uh, we would have um, read you a travel itinerary for most of those chapters, but so we took those at a little bit uh, bigger, bigger bites. Um, and, th- and as we conclude this, this series through the book of Acts today, I just really want us to kind of pause for a minute is to stop and think about all the things that we've seen God do in this book. All the things that he's accomplished just in these few short years that we had through the book of Acts. And that's all they are is a few short years. Wasn't wasn't a long time. 
And as we bring this book to a close, um, I don't want to just fly through it and just say, okay, we're done. That was Acts chapter 28. We're, we're done with this. It, it's important for us to remember one key thing about this book, but, but anytime we're in Scripture, but especially here today right now as we're kind of wrapping up this series, is that we are not detached from this story. Like We're not separated. We're not on the outside of the story that's going on in the book of Acts. This has been a profound uh, journey through this book because it's a, it's a historical account of something that really happened. Like you got you to get that, and we got to stop and think about it. this is something that really happened. If you read through the entire book of Acts, and especially you'll see that even some today as we read this last chapter, Luke was very, very intentional when he was writing the letter, uh, the, the book of Acts, to detail political figures, people who are written in history books, places, times that all align. So you, whether you're a believer or not, you can take the book of Acts and you can look at a history book and you can see how Luke was very intentional about providing the details and say, this is something that's really going on in history. This is something that, that really happened. Therefore, we are not detached from this story, from this book. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm just going to read through the chapter uh, and then we're going to pick up some key things after that. So if you would follow along with me, we're going to start in Acts chapter 28, verse 1. Um, Trent brought us to this point last week um, where uh, Paul was shipwrecked. He was on his way to Rome. Uh, he was a prisoner uh, along with many other prisoners, and he was on his way to Rome whenever they were shipwrecked. They were caught up in a storm. Uh, and here's where we pick up today. It says, after we were brought, so you see we, that's plural, that's, uh, uh, you know, you see Luke as part of being part of this story as he's writing this, he's including himself because he's there. After we, brought, we, we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. That's where we landed. We didn't know that when we got there. It was dark and crazy, but we just landed, landed there. Now we know we're on Malta. And the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. And when Paul had gathered a, bunch, a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, I, I stopped just for a second there, and it's like Paul has every reason to, to say, woe is me, I'm going to sit here and just kind of recover for a minute. Paul was always working. He was always on something, right? And so even in the midst of shipwreck, being cold and sick and likely hungry, he's, he's, he's up gathering firewood along with the natives. And so when he's doing that, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, making these assumptions, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell, swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Just think about how constant Paul is right now. Dude's having a bad day, right? Uh, can we all agree that, I mean, he's just trying to go be dead. <laughs> and he can't go be dead. Like they won't, He's trying to get to Rome. He knows that he's going to be taken there. And, and they're going to they're gonna end him at that point. And he's just... So many things, right? Prisoned, imprisoned, shipwrecked. Now he's being bitten by snakes. And the whole time he's just like gathering firewood out. Yeah, that's just what's whatever. At this point, man, I am so convinced of what God is calling me to do. I am so convinced that I am I'm steadfast. I am not, not going to be uh, deterred from where I'm going right now. Like he was sure of what God had planned for his life. 
And so he just, yeah, whatever, shakes a viper off his hand. Uh, and now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island. And this name, uh, Publius, this guy would be a, kind of a, 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 um, a representative of Rome on that island. That's who this guy would be. Um, he who received us and entertained us uh, hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. He was probably sick because that, that, that later on in history they would find that um, this sickness uh, was uh, due to like a bacteria that they would have in the goats, goat meat that they would eat. And so that's likely what's, what he's sick from here. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. So miracle number two happens right here uh, just in these few short verses. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. See how God's just sovereignly taking care of every detail? Paul, I'm going to get you to Rome, man. You can be bitten by vipers. You can be shipwrecked. You should have been dead a long time ago, but we got work to do in Rome. That's where you're going. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with twin gods as figureheads. Putting in, in, in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Putuile. And there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And I love the way Luke just says that. Finally, we arrive at Rome. You know, this is not the, not the place where we necessarily want to be because we know what's in front of us here at Rome. But man, it was something to get here. So we arrived at Rome. And the brothers there, when they had heard about us, came as far as the form of Apius, and three taverns to meet, meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Why would Paul thank God and take courage in that moment? Paul thought he was going to preach the gospel to, in Rome. And the gospel had beaten Paul uh, to Rome. The gospel was already there when he arrived. He thought, I'm, I'm the one carrying this message. I'm going to Rome. i got to get there. When he gets there, the work that he had done in Macedonia and in Asia had already made its way to Rome. And so the gospel meets Paul in Rome, and he praises God and he thanks him. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier that guarded him. And after three days, so not much time after being shipwrecked and snake bitten, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had not done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So he immediately gets to work to plead his case to the Jews there at Rome. He calls them in and says, let's lay out what's, what's, what's happening. And when they examined him, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. He thought he was having to go to provide a defense, just like he was having to do everywhere else. And these guys were like, dude, like what? What's the problem? They didn't have any clue what was going on. They said, we, you know, we hear some craziness going on, but we don't find any issue with you. And so they, they let him go. But because the Jews objected, I, compe I uh, compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for what, with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him, 
at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Every time Paul would go anywhere, this is what he was doing. Teaching them about, telling them the gospel, using the Old Testament, saying the law and the prophets that you hang so much weight on is about Jesus. It's about the good news of Jesus. And so he does the same here. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And that's just the normal outcome of preaching the gospel. That's just the reality. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, Paul would say, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Acts 28 abruptly ends. It abruptly ends with Paul imprisoned in Rome for two years awaiting trial. And 46 weeks walking through this text, if you're like me, you kind of let down that this is the ending. It just stops. It just, it, the storyline ends, and this is not the way it should end. I, if this were a movie, I would be wanting my money back. Like, this is not a good ending to me. And there's not a strong theological or a strong historical explanation for why, why Luke just seems to, to stop writing. And I have an idea, nonetheless. I'll share it at the end of our, our time together. But a combination of Scripture specifically First and Second Timothy and, and Titus, and some historical work, thanks to some early historians, some church historians, um, the work that they've done, it gives us a pretty good idea what happens to Paul after this. So a lot of things that we know about Paul has come from, from these two sources, from the, from the Bible and from uh, those who, who've done history, uh, work in history. And so I'm going to try to capture some of those things for you so we can kind of get an idea of what happened to Paul after this. He was just, the way it ends, he's just preaching the gospel in his house in Rome, we don't know anything else at that point. The scriptures don't say anything else. But do they? It says here, in, in the, the, it kind of ends in, in the book of Acts. But if you know history, after two years of, of waiting, after this two-year period where Paul is, is uh, uh, in Rome waiting, he finally gets to appeal his case before Caesar. He finally gets to go before him. And oddly enough, it's Nero who he's standing in front of, and he's acquitted. Rome was not hostile toward the gospel at that time. They were just kind of indifferent. And so Paul gets to, uh, he's set free. Uh, and so he gets some time, and, and we pick that up in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he's writing. This is one of the last letters he's written before he dies. And he says, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through, the, through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. 
Um, that was his way of telling uh, Timothy that he was, uh, he was acquitted at that first appeal that he, got, he, that he was standing in front of Caesar after this release, after he would um, be released uh, from prison after these two years, accompanied by Timothy and accompanied by Titus. Uh, they would travel to Crete. They would, go, they would kind of start traveling again. We know this because Titus chapter 1, verse 5 this is why I left you in Crete. He's writing to Titus so that you might put what remained in, into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So he, they went to Crete and he left Titus there. Him and Timothy uh, move on. They leave there and they travel to Ephesus. They go back to Ephesus, that place where revival had broken out several years before. And Paul stayed there about three years. Uh, they're, they're back in Ephesus. And then Paul would leave Timothy in Ephesus and, and he would continue on, on his own alone to Philippi. He would go to Macedonia. And we know that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, which is Philippi, that's where he was headed, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines. Church was kind of coming unraveled with crazy doctrines. And so when they were in Ephesus and they saw that, he left Timothy there. I need you to shore up some theological things and, and get a good strong foundation for the church. I'm going to head to Philippi. This is all in this, this period after he'd been released. And according to historians from that point, Paul would eventually make his way as far as Spain. He would travel, it would say the historians, he would travel to the, far, to the farthest reaching west. At that time was the, the most western point of the Roman Empire was Spain. And they would say that he would travel from Philippi and make it all the way to Spain. And in 64 A.D., um, many of you have uh, heard of the great fire of Rome. If you've done any history uh, reading whatsoever, there was this, this devastating fire. It was widespread. It lasted about six days uh, before they were able to actually even contain it. And it's widely believed that the, the, the Caesar there, Nero, the emperor of Rome at that time, was actually the one uh, who was in charge, uh, or I say in charge, was the one who actually started this or instigated this uh, and then blamed it on the Christians. And at that point, fierce uh, persecution broke out. Um, these Christians, they were kind of already unpopular, but they weren't hurting, hurting anybody, and so Rome just kind of left them alone. But then they actively started going after them after this point. Um, and this, this would initiate the, the, the first Roman persecution uh, of the church at this time. Nero, at that point, would apprehend Paul and Peter. He would grab both of them and bring them back to Rome um, to charge them. And in 66 A.D., he would have them both executed. Historians would tell us that Paul was beheaded. They took him about three miles out of the city, chopped his head off, threw him on the side of the road, and left him for wild dogs to eat on him. The great apostle Paul, that's how he goes out. Isn't that disheartening? Three miles outside of Rome today, if you go there, the place where they assume that, uh, based on history, where Paul was, was executed is this large um, facility this large uh, uh, temple built on that, on that location today. And many of you had heard Peter would be executed there in the city of Rome. Uh, he, would, he would be requested to, to be crucified upside down so as not to be counted as worthy as his Lord, to be crucified right side up. And so he would be uh, executed that way. So that's the story based on Scripture and based on history. That's, that's how we arrive there. Uh, again, it's history, uh, I, I, and so it, it could have some, uh, it may not be exactly accurate, but that's, that's be the best-known histor historical work that we have. And so for our time today, um, I want to kind of sort of open up a window, uh, just kind of give us a little bit of a snapshot, I guess, 
Uh, much like we did in the beginning of this series. If you remember the first time that we, uh, that we opened this book, what we did is we did a survey across all 28 chapters, and we connected the dots from chapter to chapter to chapter to chapter to chapter, all the way through, and there was one thing that constantly came up, that despite opposition, the gospel moved forward. And here we are, watching Paul play out the last moments of his lives and how he, uh, last moment of his life and how he lives that out. Verse 17, it says, After three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the, of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case, but because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation." For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel. He's talking about Jesus right there, that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you. None of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are with regards to this sect. For we know that everyone, everywhere is it's spoken against. And so I want to tap the brakes for just a minute, and remind you that the gospel has made it to Rome. Believers are in Rome when Paul gets there, and it's crazy that he's so determined to get there to carry the gospel that it would beat him there. And in verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. People are flocking to him. They want to hear this message that he has to say. From morning till evening he expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Because if you remember, that was Paul's forte, man. He would, take, he would contextualize the gospel with everyone he saw. And these guys hung everything on the law and on the prophets. And he said, I'm going to start there, and I'm going to teach you the gospel. I'm going to show you uh, uh, Jesus in, the, in, this, in these scriptures. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. He would live there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. He was free to talk about Jesus. So you take what we've seen up to this point in the book of Acts and you consider the historical account that we just went through, the remainder of Paul's life, and I continue to get hung up on this one thing. And I've been getting hung up on this one thing every time we open a chapter of this book. And it's that Jesus is changing people, man. He's constantly changing people. Remember how we met Paul. He wasn't such a friendly supporter of Christianity, was he? He wasn't such a, a friend of Jesus. He wasn't interested, nor was he pursuing more information about Jesus. Paul hated Jesus. He hated him. Our first meetup with Paul, we learned that he's a terrorist. Do you believe that God can redeem terrorists? Standing over the dead body of a follower of Jesus, giving approval, is where we meet this guy. That was in Acts chapter 8. Saul approved of his execution. He's talking about Stephen. And there arose on that great day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the guy we're talking about today. He wasn't just a skeptic. He wasn't just kind of trying to understand Christianity. He, was, he wasn't just a person who was indifferent or passive toward Jesus. 
He hated Jesus. He was an antagonist, and he wanted to put a stop to everything that the church was about. That was his whole goal in life. And then we pick up in, in chapter 9 where we saw Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord and went to the high priest and asked for him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he, lay, he found any belonging to the way, Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul is giving his life to restrain and to snuff out Christianity. He's given his life away for it. And by the time we reach the end of this book, by the time we get to the end, this terrorist is now a Christian himself. He's now come in, into to, uh, face-to-face with Jesus. The most ironic way, it, he's here giving his, his life to propagate the gospel and to plant churches throughout all of the known world. The guy who was trying to snuff it out, the guy who was trying to, trying to kill it, because Jesus changes people. What happened to Paul? Jesus happened to Paul. That's, that's what happened to him. On the way to Damascus, Jesus happens. And if, and if we were in charge of the script, I guarantee you many of us in this room, if, if we were in charge of writing the story, it would look a lot different, wouldn't it? Man, we met up with this murderous terrorist Saul, and God crushed him. God killed him. God defeated him. And God said, no, I'm writing a different story for this guy. I'm writing a different story for him. And I'm grateful today that God writes the story, and I don't. I'm so grateful for that, that Saul would be so enamored by the grace. He would be so taken by the beauty of Jesus that day that he said, I'm going to give my life to make him known. Whatever it takes, I'm going to make him known. And the book of Acts, it's filled with these moments. If you just read through chapter by chapter, it's just filled with moments of, of Jesus changing people. Every time we would come to a new section in the scripture, you just see Jesus just, just radically changing people's minds and lives and, and their hearts. And as I've said before, and while the events, these, these events around Paul's conversion, they're, they're, they're somewhat unique, his response to meeting Jesus is not. Yeah, he was a terrorist, right? He was, he was trying to, to snuff out Christianity, and that might be unique to him, but the fact that he met Jesus and was radically changed, that he was brought from death to life, and that he decided to give his life away for the gospel is no different than any conversion of any other believer even today. And we like to hold, hold him up high and say, wow, look at what he did. That's normal Christianity, according to Scripture. That's normal Christianity. Men and women throughout history have experienced these similar responses where they weren't even looking for God or, or they, were, they were running away from God and Jesus in his love and in his mercy chased after them. That he chased after them in the story of Acts and the entire Bible for that matter. It's, it's not a story of, of God sending this ladder down from heaven called religion. That's not what the story of the Bible is about. These, these wrongs, right? There are good deeds. There are, there are church attendance. There are, there are moral uh, attitudes and moral actions that get us closer to God. That's not what the story is about. The story is actually of God sending His Son. While we were all running away from God, He was running after us. He sends His Son. And rather than crush us, as we so deserved, he crushes his son in our place. That's the story. That's the story uh, of, of Scripture. And, and the offer on the table 
for every person here in this room, for everyone in this community, for everyone in this world, the offer on the table for every person is that if you come to Jesus, sinful and busted up as you are, if you would just come to Jesus, God will forgive you and he will give you a new identity in Christ. That's the offer on the table. He'll change you. Jesus changes people. He's, he's done everything for you. You don't do anything. You believe. Jesus changes people, and you, you only have to believe. And in this book, we've not, we've not only seen Jesus changing people, but again, I just want to point to the fact that his mission is continuing to advance. He's continuing to, to push back darkness. And a, and a question that, that I hear more common than you would actually realize is, where, like, where is Jesus today? Like, where is he, where is he at in, 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 in today's context? Well, you know, he was crucified, right? He was, he was buried, and on the third day, he rose from the grave. He appeared to hundreds of people in a 40-day span over the course of 40 days before he would ascend to his rightful place in heaven. We, we, we understand that about Jesus. But just before his ascension, he commissions his followers. He gathers his disciples around, and, and we saw this book just kind of launch off at chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And you see the entire book of Acts laid out that way. Chapters 1 through 7, Luke is focused in on on the earliest witnesses of believers right there in Jerusalem. You see chapters 8 through 12, after the, after the stoning of, of Stephen and persecution would break out, they would move out into the outlying regions of Judea and Samaria. That's where they would go. And then chapter 13, tells the, chapter 13 starts to tell the story all the way through the book, the rest of the book, chapter 28, of the great missionary expansion of Paul and Barnabas and others. The church would go to the rest of the known world with the gospel, planting churches, traveling through Asia, traveling through Europe to plant churches everywhere. And so basically the commission that Jesus gave at the very beginning of the book, you just see it like clearly unfold throughout the entire book. That they started right there in Jerusalem. And that it moved out into Judea and Samaria. And then before you know it, Paul is in Spain. He's in Asia. Churches planted everywhere. Jesus is continuing to advance his kingdom. But here's the deal. Now... It's being done through people like you and me. Jesus is continuing to do this. Even today, he's advancing his mission. He's pushing back darkness. The gospel is moving forward, and it's being done through people like you and me. He continues to do this. Acts is the story of the mission of God advancing in profound ways. You see, in chapter 1, there were 120 followers of Jesus. You could literally put all of known Christianity in one room when we opened this book. 120 people. In chapter 28, we're a little bit further outside of Jerusalem. A little bit further. Say about 2,548.2 miles away, we're in Rome when we get to chapter 28. That's how far Christianity has spread. And instead of just a couple of dozen being added along the way, thousands and thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of people many of whom had never put their eyes on the the human form of God in in Jesus Christ themselves, but believed the message of the gospel and experienced the transforming power of the gospel. Jesus is not on vacation. He's not just checked out. 
He's advancing his mission. He's continuing the story. He's continuing to, to, to move his gospel throughout this whole world so that every tribe, every nation, every language, every tongue would worship the one true God. That's what Jesus is doing today. That's where he's at today. And that's how he's working today. And we've seen over and over and over in this book that there is, there is more persecution. As, this, as persecution uh, rises up and as opposition rises up and as more antagonism rises up with the gospel, this is like the worst time in church history, if I could be perfectly honest with you, for, for persecution and for opposition. But what you also see in this time and throughout history, what we've seen, that the, that the advancement of the gospel would only spread farther and farther in the midst of all of this. That you couldn't stop the movement of the gospel, regardless of where you are spiritually today, regardless of where you are politically or socially. Can we all agree uh, that the world we currently live in is a hot mess? Can we just all kind of come around that idea and realize, like, man, things are not as they should be? Stuff is messed up. People have crazy things that they think about and agendas that they push. And some days, I'll be honest with you, I just can't even believe some of the things I'm hearing and seeing, and, and especially coming out of the church. I'm just like, what is going on? This place is crazy. And I think we can all agree that to some degree it's messed up. And as Christians, right, we feel this on a little bit more serious level. Right? Because we're standing here and we know the truth and we know what God desires for this world and we see it broken and busted up and become, it becomes way more personal and way more serious for the believer. But can I share some good news with you? I need everybody to, to, to hear this, that as Christianity gets pushed more and more to the margins, as Christianity becomes uh, uh, minimized and, and, and pushed to the outlying areas from all the bizarre things that are happening in the world, the margins are the environment where the gospel flourishes. That's where we see all throughout history and all throughout Scripture is that's where the gospel flourishes. That's the perfect environment for the gospel to spread. That's what we saw in the book of Acts. In the first century, Christianity made no sense at all. It was ridiculous in the first century, in this story. It was offensive to the Jews. They hated, the, they hated the story of the gospel. It, it, was, it was offensive and it was ridiculous and irrelevant to the Romans. It's like, whatever, you guys are weird. Whatever, we got our own thing going on. We got all these gods that we're going to worship. How can you say just one God is the God of all and he comes in the form of man and saves the world? And what is that even about? It's, it's just irrelevant to them. This was the worst message. This was the worst message to try to advance in the first century. Thousands and thousands believed this message and were radically changed. The church blossoms when she's shoved to the margins. That's where the church flourishes and blossoms. And so as we stand as the church and we look at this world and it's broken and busted up and people are thinking crazy things and, and pushing crazy ideas around, even out of the church, those gospel-centered, Bible-believing churches that are pushed to the margins, this is where we flourish. This is not a time for us to be discouraged, to think that we're losing a fight. This is where we, this is where we do our best work. This is where God shines the brightest. The mission of God is going to advance as the world gets crazier and crazier. So take heart. It's, it's okay. Everybody remain calm. And if you're sitting around thinking, hey, man, this world is out of control, it's, it's spinning out of control, consider this. Jesus is ready to advance his kingdom. He's, he's ready to do it even further. And we're more effective 
as the underdog than we are when we have a seat at the table. Can I, can I, can I help you understand that? That as the underdog, as the ones who are counted less than, as the ones who are ridiculed, as the ones who are made fun of, the ones who are dismissed, that's where we do our best work. That's where we thrive as followers of Jesus Christ. We've had our seat at the table, and guess what? We didn't do well there. We do well as the underdog. That's what Scripture has been teaching us this whole time. No amount of opposition, no persecution, no setback can stop the mission of God. Can we get that? It only helps to advance the mission of God. And so, so don't think that you're coming. And, and I love that this just kind of really smashes the whole prosperity gospel idea, right? That, that you know what? The reason think things aren't going well is because you're not doing this thing. And, and the only, thing, only time things are going to go well for you is if, if you do these things. And it's like almost like this action-based type thing. And I'm here to tell you that a lot of times when persecution and opposition will come our way, that's, that's God getting ready to do something big. So take heart. Be encouraged. Be steadfast and believe the gospel that he's got us. Paul, we're getting the gospel to Rome. You're going to be shipwrecked on the way. You're going to be snake bit. You're going to wish you were dead hundreds of times, but we're going to get the gospel to Rome. And that's good news for us. How does he do this? How does God advance his mission? Anybody who's gone to Sunday school? Jesus. That's the Sunday school answer, right? Jesus. Reality? The mission is going to advance by Jesus calling and equipping you and me to live a life on mission. That's how he advances the gospel. That's how that happens. While those early followers in Acts chapter 1, they heard the ends of the earth. For them, the the ends of the earth meant Rome. When they heard the ends of the earth, that's what they meant. We're going to Rome with the gospel. For you and I, it's Louisiana, it's Mexico, it's Kenya, we know the ends of the world now. We know, we know where the ends of the earth are now. They didn't have internet. They didn't have airplanes and cars. And they carried the gospel to the ends of the earth, just like Jesus commissioned them to do. And here we are. What are we doing? We are literally here for that sole purpose there is no other purpose that you are on earth for but for that one period to advance the gospel to the ends of the the earth to make much of God in our neighborhoods and to the nations by reflecting Jesus Christ that's our sole purpose so can we do this again I can't Can we really do this? Can we consider the book of Acts? That it took these early believers without internet, airplane, money, cars, bicycles, about 30 years to reach their known end of the earth. It took them about 30 years. They actually believed Jesus. They actually believed that that's what was going to happen. And they followed him there. Can we do it? Most of us in the room, we got 30 years on us. Can we do it again? He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And it just feels like somebody lost some of Luke's manuscripts. It just feels like we, we lost some of that. Like there's, 
There should be more. And Paul was living in his house telling people about Jesus, the end. Now I said in the beginning, I think I have an idea of the rest of the story. And I, I believe that it's not about what happens to Paul. With all the reverence that I can, that I can muster up, who cares what happened to Paul? Surely God cares for Paul, and we should too. What happens to the servants of God absolutely matter to him. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, right? Absolutely, he cares about Paul. It's... While Luke has laid his pen down, the story is still being written. That's my idea. That's why it just abruptly stops, because it doesn't stop, really. Right? The, the story continues to be written. This was Paul's lap. And he's handed the baton off, and someone else has taken the lap, and someone else has taken the lap, and now here we are. And we have it. And so we're still writing the story. This book has no ending because it has not ended yet. The mission of God has not been advanced to the ends of the earth as we know it today. And what concerns God at this point is not what happened, what concerns him is, is not what happens with Paul. What concerns him is what's happening with you right now. What about you? What matters to him is whether you are being faithful in the calling in which he's called you. You are walking in the, in the steps that he's ordained for you. That's what he cares about right now in this moment. He told his disciples, Jesus, when, whenever he was explaining to him, them how the world works and how the gospel works, he says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And I will go ahead and state the obvious, that the end is yet to come. So the gospel of the kingdom must be proclaimed throughout the whole world. As a testimony to all nations. Why do we exist? To make much of God in our neighborhood and to the nations by reflecting Jesus Christ. And if we've learned anything through this book, it's that the only hindrance that there is to the gospel is our lack of speaking it and demonstrating it. That's the only hindrance to the gospel. You see it moving forward. You see it blazing trails. And God intends to do that through you and me. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Will we take this gospel into our neighborhoods? Will we take this gospel to the nations as we have been instructed to in the story? Will we continue to write the story. It's on you and it's on me to do that as brothers and sisters.